0: Welcome to the Cary Church podcast. For more information regarding Cary Church, visit www.cary.asn.au.
1: This morning's readings, appropriately, from Malachi 3 verses 6 to 12: Breaking Covenant by Withholding Tithes. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. And since we're doing things a little bit differently today, I might get you to do something that could be possibly a little bit old school. But for the next reading, I'll get you to all stand up, if you will, while we listen to the final reading. Just because you've been sitting for a while, it might be nice to stretch your legs as well. This one's from 2 Corinthians, chapter 9, verses 6 to 15. Remember this, whoever so sparingly This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for this incredible gift, and thanks be to God for this word. Have a seat.
0: Well, hi. I'm Brian Harris, service pastor at Large, Harry Kerry, and my privilege to introduce the series on matters of the heart. And I guess if I were to ask you, uh, try to think through a list of three things that you need to be able to achieve the things that you really want to do in life. Three things that you need to be able to achieve the things that you really want to do in life. Uh, I wonder what your list would be. Uh, I imagine that if you, oh, I'll tell you what my list is at any rate, uh, I'm, I would say that you need health. Because if you don't have health, there are an enormous number of things that you can't do. But then you need money as well, don't you? Because how do you fund what you want to do without money? It's a significant part of it. And you also need time. Because if you don't have time, you can sometimes be quite a wealthy person. And yet you just don't have the time to get around to doing the things that you actually wanted to do. And so when you start a series, as I've got to do today, Matters of the Heart, that basically suggests that of those three, we should be willing to give two of them away, it's a bit of a stretching series, because we're saying that actually we should be willing to give of our money, and we should be willing to give up our time back to God. And those two things do such a lot in setting us free as people to be able to do the things that we want to do. And therefore, if we look at limiting ourselves in some way by giving away our money, or Giving away our time—it really is a matter of the heart. It's something that challenges us quite deeply. So, accept that this is actually a, a challenging series. It's a matter of the heart kind of a series. And I thought that today it would be good to kick off with a, a kind of a. a we, today the folks more on giving. We'll look a little bit more on the third one at, at the use of our time. But today's a kind of a, a giving 101 talk. And I think that a good place to start is to look at a 101 passage from the Old Testament, Malachi 3, uh, and then to look at a a giving 101 passage from the New Testament, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So we we look at both those passages. And Malachi chapter 3, uh, which Miranda read to us just a moment ago, is a kind of a a giving 101 passage. It's one that people very often quote uh, when they speak about, about giving. It's about, you know, not robbing God, about giving the tithe back to God. And if you want to understand Malachi as a book, uh, maybe it's, it's a challenging kind of a book because it's a book that that's quite accusing. So this passage, you know, starts off, you know, why are you robbing God? It's it's pretty accusatory, isn't it? And and in many ways, to understand Malachi, you you, you need to understand that there's a there's a punch that goes with it, but there's also a wooiness that goes with it as well. And and the the the, the kind of backdrop of it. Is that God is looking at Israel and saying, You know, you you think that you're people of faith, but who are you kidding? Who are you kidding? And, and, and perhaps I can put it a little bit like this. A, a, a year ago, a family and I, we, we were privileged. We managed to get a holiday to Japan. It was, was a wonderful time. Re- really enjoyed it very much. But one of the things we were told about Japan was that when you go there, they've got vending machines everywhere. And you can get absolutely anything through a vending machine in Japan. It's part of their enormous efficiency. You don't have to pay salespeople all, all over. The machine does it all for you. And we were told that the quality of these vending machines was, was really remarkable. So if you wanted a coffee or you wanted a hot chocolate or you wanted some tea or whatever, you could very confidently find one pretty much anywhere, and you'd get great coffee and great chocolate and great tea or whatever it was. So, so fine. Usually I wouldn't get coffee from a vending machine. i have been spoiled by timber over here. Uh, but thought in Japan we'd do that. So I went there and clocked in for my flat white, because they give you lots of choices on these machines, so I thought I'd have try, try flat white, and put it in, and uh, certainly a thing called coffee came out, uh, and I drank it, and the claim, number one, that it was hot, was almost true. It was, was reasonably hot. Uh, that it was great coffee, no. No. Absolutely not. Really, really. I mean, I know true timber sets a high bar, but even if it was a really low bar, it wouldn't have met it. It was appalling. It was this apology for coffee. And I came to this, this conclusion that that anyone who, who, who was, that all the people who had said, Got great coffee, you know, through these vending machines, try them. I just realized, well, you are a pathological liar. There's just not, no way that that's even vaguely true. And you come by thinking, you know, call that coffee, thank you very much. Now, now, now that kind of a call that coffee is, is the sense that you must, when you read Malachi, that's kind of the refrain that goes through the book. It's not call that coffee, it's call that faith, <laughs> you know, who are you kidding? Because it, it, its chapters are, are go around particular questions. And, and the question in chapter one is very much a, a question of why are you disrespecting God? You know, why you, and God asks the question, and he's quite aggressive. You know, why are you showing contempt to me, God says. And the people say, whoa, beg your pardon? We do not show contempt to you. That is so unfair. We, we, we give you offerings at the temple, God. How could you possibly say that we're showing contempt to you? And God says, yes, but don't think I'm blind. I do notice that you only offer your, your diseased cattle and your old cattle, and those that are no use whatsoever. Call that coffee. Call that faith. I mean, who do you think you're kidding? And chapter 2, it's an accusation to the priests. And to the priests, God says, you know, why aren't you doing your job? And we say, whoa, we, we do our job. Thank you very much. We, we are teaching the people. How can you possibly say that we're not doing our job? That, that is just so unfair. It's unreasonable. And God says, yes. And you're teaching them rubbish, and it's completely—it's heretical, and it's not the truth that you're teaching them. Call that faith. Call that coffee. Call that that teaching. And then, chapter three, you know, why are you robbing me? Says God. And the people, are like, how can you say that we're robbing you? That, that 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 is just ridiculous. We are not robbing you at all. I mean, we even give to you. How can you possibly say that we rob? Yeah, but you you're holding back on the tithes. You're not giving the full tithes. So. So call that coffee, call that giving, call, call that faith. It, it's a hard-hitting chapter, and Malachi is a very hard-hitting book. And it revolves around, and chapter 3 revolves around this idea that you've got to give God the whole tithe, and that, that's what it says. Now, 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 let's just ask ourselves a question. So what's tithing about? So tithing is a practice in the Old Testament. It's taught fairly early on in the piece. It's about giving 10% of what you have. Now, now, the community was essentially an agricultural community. People didn't operate in money, by and large. Uh, so people, when they gave, they would give from their harvest. And you'd take your harvest, and you'd take your cattle, or what, whatever it was that that, that, that that you had, and you'd give 10% of it. And you'd give it to the temple, because when God dis- uh, divided up the land of Israel, he divided it in such a way that the Levites, the priests, did not get any land whatsoever. They had to, everyone else got land, uh, but the Levites were to be supported or the, or the priests were to be supported by the giving of the people, by the giving of all the different tribes, and they were told you have to give 10% of what you, what you have. You give those to the Levites, the priests, and they will then be able to look after themselves and they'll be able to look after the temple and they'll be able to look after the people in need and they'll be able to look after strangers and all the work of the temple will actually get done. So let's just look at a couple of verses that, that speak about that. So as we, we look at them, you find, for example, uh, that in Leviticus, let me just find the correct verse here, Leviticus chapter 27 verse 30, it uh, gives the basic command then, Leviticus 30, uh, 27, 30, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord, it is holy to the Lord. In other words, a tithe, tithe means the tenth, 10% of everything from the land, whether it's grain, whether it's fruit, that belongs not to you, it belongs to God, it is holy to the Lord, and the word holy in the Bible means to be set apart for the exclusive use of. So that 10% is for the exclusive use of of God, it is not yours, it is to be God's. That's that, that's the Old Testament command. And uh, it gives slightly fuller instructions then in Numbers chapter 18, 21 to 24, but the way in which that's given then then to the... To the Levites. Uh, So Numbers eighteen, twenty one, I give to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work they do while serving at the tent of meeting. From now on the Israelites must must not go near the tent of meeting, or they will bear the consequences of their sins and will die. If the Levites who are to do the work at the tent of meeting and bear the responsibility for any offence they commit against it, this is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. They, the Levites, will receive no inheritance amongst the Israelites. Instead, I give to the Levites as their inheritance the tithes that the Israelites present as an offering to the Lord. That is why I said concerning them, they are to have no inheritance among the Israelites. In other words, uh, the way that we run the temple way that the Levites, the way the priests are to be paid, and the way that the temple is to be able to function, is that, that the people bring the 10%, and they don't have anything of their own, but from that 10%, everything that the temple does is actually managed. Now, as you read it like that, you would think, okay, so then obviously in the Old Testament everyone tithed. No, 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 that, 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 that's not true. Tithing was always a voluntary system. It was something that people were encouraged to do, but the priests never had the power to enforce it. So the priests couldn't go around to people and say, you haven't given your tithe, you're going to go off to jail or something like that. And priests were actually quite influential in their days. So, uh, you know, you would have thought that maybe they could have enforced it more rigorously, but they didn't. And as you actually look through the history of Israel, you'll find that there were times when the nation did tithe. And when the nation did tithe, you'll you, you find that the temple flourished. The priests were able to be supported. They were able to do charity work in, in the community. They looked after the needs of strangers. They looked after the needs of foreigners, uh, they looked after the needs of widows, and they looked after the needs of children. And Deuteronomy speaks about the way in which when the whole tithe comes in, everyone gets blessed by it, including those who actually give the tithe. And so when the tithe was offered, uh, very often the person who brought the tithe to the temple would be part of the feast of celebration, which would take uh, part part as as part of, of the giving process. But there were times when people tithed and there were times when they didn't, and there were tithes, times kind of like Malachi's time, was an in-between kind of a time. Uh, people were sort of tithing, but uh, when they say sort of, it's, it means they were given maybe 2%, 3%, 4%, whatever it was, it wasn't the whole tithe which was given. And uh, there were times, therefore, when giving was very poor, when the priests could not do the work of the temple, and they had to do other work, and the work of the temple suffered quite significantly. There were other times when the work of the temple flourished. What am I saying? I'm saying that it's very normal in in the Old Testament for tithing sometimes to be practiced quite rigorously. Sometimes to be practiced a lot less rigorously. But always it was there. It was voluntary. It wasn't enforced. You couldn't make anyone do it. But it was the standard which was used to help people give this, this kind of a benchmark. This is what you should be doing. Now... I think that as we we come to Malachi, this passage in Malachi, as we think about it, as our kind of giving one hundred and one passage for, for for today, I think that there are basic principles which still stick with us today, because as you you read Malachi, as 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 was read, read, read out to us, it's put forward as a first, as this this harsh almost accusation: why are you robbing God? But it does also come with a with a wooiness. It comes saying, you know. Test me in this. Trust me in this. See, if, if you tithe, see if I won't bless you. See if you won't find that actually things overflow for you in an, in an incredible way. And God is saying that in the end, it is actually a matter of the heart. It is though God is saying, on the one hand, he's saying, why don't you do this? And the other hand, he's saying, oh, okay, I, I, I get it. I get it. The reason you're not doing this is that you're not sure if you can really trust me. You're not sure if I'll look after you. You're not sure if I'll take care of your needs. You, you are worried that if you give to me that somehow your life won't work and that you'll be poorer and that it's not going to come together. No, no, you're getting it wrong. If you trust me in this, you can trust me and you will see that I will provide for you and I will note what you've done and I will look after you. And, and, and so, the, 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 those two streams that, that run through the one is an exasperated God. You know, what, do you think you can rob me? You know, why are you doing this? You know that this is supposed to be holy for me. And there's another God saying, surely you, you, you know you can trust me. Surely you know that you can depend upon me. And I guess that is something that we all do need to learn in our own journeys, in our journey of faith. I know that for Rosemary and myself, it was a journey that we had to learn when we first got married tithing was actually quite easy we were both earning I was working as a chaplain wasn't earning terribly much but nevertheless so in some ways when you don't earn much it's quite easy to tithe it's like you don't have to give very much and you've already reached a tithe so it's it's quite simple Uh, but Rosemary was working as a university lecturer at that point uh, lecturing in nursing and she was earning quite well and uh, you know between the two of us we had a very very respectable living thank you and it wasn't actually that that difficult to tithe so it was fine but then we had our first child, Nick, and uh, Rosemary stopped working. We felt that, that that was the right thing to do, to stop working. I'd just been appointed pastor of a church, uh, Stenbosch Baptist Church. It's a little church, uh, and it it really was a little church. When, when we were called, there were 11 members of the church, and they voted about whether they call us to be their pastor or not, and nine of them said yes, and two of them said no. So it was like, well, okay, I always wondered who those two were, uh, and, and actually found out. I mean, I'm... I digress, but actually found out because I started, started running with some people in the church. And one day the man said to me, it was my running partner, you know, I actually vote, my, I and my wife voted against your coming. and and But then he did say to me, because we, we really rather liked you. And we couldn't, thought you were too nice to have to put up with a place like this, uh, which was quite untrue. It was a wonderful, wonderful place. So I don't know why it felt like that. Anyway, it's completely off, off the point. Uh, so we... It was a little church, is the point I'm making, and it was actually a church that was still having to pay a mortgage on its building, so it it was really challenged financially. So it wasn't that the people were mean. There just was not much money in the place. And we got paid very little, and Rosemary stopped working, and it was really quite hard to to think of tithing. Um, But we had made the commitment, and we said, well, we'll we'll just have to trust God in this. And and we did, and we kept on tithing. And uh, Nick was born, and... uh, my expenses go up when you have children, don't they? And uh, it, it was quite difficult. But very shortly after his birth, family of the church, whom we barely knew, and they just started coming to the church, just said, God has said to us, you must give you this money. And they started putting money into our account every single month for, for the reign of the, the, the time that we were there. And that amount of money was actually, really, it, it was very significant to us. And we tithed that as well, but we kept on tithing. But I th- I I always remember that as like this breakthrough point when it was so God said to us, you know, I've got your back here. I know the situation that you're actually in. I have provided for you. You, You've never been in need before. Now you've actually reached this point of being in need. And I have got someone to put this money in your bank account every month. You didn't do anything about that. I am looking after you. And and that was our own personal experience. And I can only say that for us, uh, God says, trust me. We didn't find it easy to trust, but when we did, we did find that God broke through for us. Now, we've been through lots of different seasons, and we're actually in quite a good season at the moment, but God has always provided. Now, now when, we, when you say tithing, like many people, we've, we've kind of said, so what does that actually mean? And we've adopted different definitions of, of, over time. So, for example, when, when our children were young, we asked this question, uh, Do you tithe on your money before or after tax? Um, And it's a a very real question, isn't it? And we had, especially when when Nick was born, we had extremely little money. And we had to say, well, you know, we can't – if we've got to kind of tithe on what we've been taxed as well, that's that's not money we actually have. Uh, So we don't have that money. And it was though God said, I know that, you, you, you can't tie on what you don't have, so just just tie the money in your hand, Tie the money in your hand. So at that point in time, we, we tied on what we got after tax, and that, that was fine. But then we realized, well, we'd like to give more, though, and once Rosemary started going back to work and our finances were a bit better, God kind of changed it and said, so, so do you still need to do that after tax thing? You, you, you know, why, why not tithe, you know, before tax? And we said... Fair enough, we'll, we'll do that because it's possible for us to do that because actually everything, God, that you've given comes to us from you. And we've been able to do that that, 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 that ever since. Well, Why am I wanting to say that that, that to you? I, I think we realized in that, that time that God isn't the great legalist. So God isn't the one who's saying, uh, you, you, you know, you tithe only after tax. You know, I'm going to get you for that or something like that. He, he knows your position and he knows where you're starting from. In fact... I know a number of people who've said to me, you know, Brian, I've heard you talking about tithing, but I'm sorry. I, I just know what our finances are. We cannot possibly, we cannot possibly think of giving 10%. It's just out of the question. And I say to them, well, okay, fine. God knows that. Uh, but trust God because he can do more than you imagine. But why not kick up with 2% or 3% or 1%? But but just just commit to something. Just commit to something. And why not, as you commit to that, why not pray, God, 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 help me to make it more. And make this commitment to yourself that as God actually provides for you, that you will make it more and that you will progressively push that upwards. And so what starts at 2% maybe in two years' time could be 4% and maybe 6% or maybe 8% and maybe can get to 10%. Who knows? Maybe at some point it can get to 20%. I think that's what the essence of Malachi is saying. You know, Don't, don't rob God in the sense that you just fob God off and say, everything I've done is okay. You know, recognize that God is saying, I've given you everything that you have. Now, now, what are you giving back? And I know that it's costly, but trust me. Trust me, I I will provide for you. And yes, there's this helpful benchmark to start thinking around, and, and that benchmark is, is the 10% mark, but, uh, you, you know, start where you start, and, and that's okay, trust me on this. And I think that that starts to get backed up when you, you move across to the New Testament. So So people sometimes say, Hard? Old Testament thing, you know, with Jesus, you know, you can forget about the law, uh, we're in a new era of liberation. And that's absolutely true, absolutely true. But let's remember grace, by and large, isn't an invitation to do less. Grace is an invitation to work from a different motivation. Grace is an invitation to, to operate from the love of God. And so when we come to what I would call the, the giving 101 passage in the New Testament, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Let's listen a little bit more to to the kind of ethos that comes through this passage. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Remember this, this, this broad principle. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. So hold everything tightly to yourself. Fine, you'll just be a tight person who doesn't really get very much. But sow generously and God will be generous to you. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. Not what the preacher tells you to give. Not what you feel pressurized to give. But each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Something you must think about. Something you must contemplate. It's a matter for the heart. What should we be giving? And each of you should then do that. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly. Not oh, grief, the things I've got to do here. No, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Why does God love a cheerful giver? God loves a cheerful giver because God sees someone who's trusting him. God sees someone who's got, got the picture right. God sees someone who actually knows that everything that they have comes ultimately from God. God loves people who are able to give cheerfully, not not resentfully. Uh, and so, so there's something of the ethos that, that, that's coming through. You should give what you've decided in your heart to give. Don't do it reluctantly. Don't do it under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. And listen to these words of reassurance. And God is able to bless you abundantly. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have scattered. Abroad, their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way, in every way, so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Now, now the background of 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is that the church in Jerusalem had hit very hard times. Uh, They'd been persecuted. Uh, that caused devastation. Many of them had to flee uh, their homes at short notice. Some of them were able to come back but were not unemployed. It was a very difficult situation for them. And then on top of everything, there was a major famine. And so the church in Jerusalem, in very difficult circumstances, Paul sees that and he invites the churches to make an offering to help help these, these, these fellow believers in Jesus in Jerusalem. And and he writes this letter as this appeal for giving has been given to the the church in Corinth. And it's in this context that he's saying, you know, your giving will make other people rich, will help other people. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have provided yourselves, people will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their heart will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given to you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now, I think Paul is very quickly saying three key things there. Key thing number one. uh, Paul is saying, you you know, if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you sow generously, you'll, you'll reap generously. Paul is saying that, that actually when you give, surprisingly, you're the one who will be blessed. Surprisingly, you're the one who will be blessed. You'll think, you know, these things I'm giving up, I'm not going to be able to meet my goals now, but, but you'll find that that you will be blessed through through, through giving. And, and so he almost unashamedly says, you know, there's, a, there's an element of self-interest in this. You'll do better if you, if you give. I can remember pastoring at Amshlonga Baptist Church, and there was a man there, he was a retired accountant, and... Uh, he was, a, he was a really nice guy, retired, a bit of time in his hands, a little bit bored. He, he was one of those people who'd come along to church fairly regularly through his life, but, but you just knew he had never really had a deep encounter with Jesus. You, 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 could, you could just sense it. It was just like, this is my culture, this is my background, this is what I do. Come to church periodically, and that's my relationship because that's the right thing to do. And at any rate, having a bit of time in his hands, he, he volunteered that he would help the church in counting the offering each week before it was banked. So that was very useful and became part of a little team of people who did the counting. And uh, that was his little offering back to God, which, which was great. Um, one, one day when he came in, uh, the church was, had started a, a school in a squatter area. This was a part of South Africa, and there was a squatter area of Ananda not all that far from, from, from the church where some of the poorest of the poor lived. And we had managed to start a small school in, in that squatter area, and one of the things we did at that school was also to be part of a feeding scheme to to, to children in, in, in that school, and involved taking we we partnered together with a couple of other churches in the area, and we had had two days a week in which we had to take food through through to the school, and we then helped to feed all the children. And uh, one day we were supposed to be it was our turn on for the feeding, and just through a uh, just a, a a perfect storm of things. It was impossible to get the food out. Every piece of transport that we had was either broken or unavailable, and we just couldn't. We had the food, but we couldn't get it out there. And at this point, Peter, uh, who was the, the person I'm talking about, having to walk into the office, and he was going to help with the counting. and we said, oh, you know, we've got this problem here. We can't get the food to this, the school in the squad area. And he kind of rolled his eyes a little bit because he realized that he was being pressurized to do the driving for us. Um, but he said, oh, okay, okay, I guess the counting can wait. Uh, I'll, I'll drive you out and you can, can get the food out. And he did. And he was absolutely, utterly and totally blown away by what he had seen. Like, like many South Africans in the apartheid era, Many white South Africans in the apartheid era. he had always lived in white areas. This was the first time he had been into a squatter area. He had never seen the depth of the poverty that there was there. And as he saw those kids and how clearly they they needed that food and how desperately they needed it, uh, he suddenly realized that if he hadn't given the lift that day, that those kids would have had nothing to eat because this was the only food they were going to get that day. And I think for the first time in his life, he realized he had made a difference. And that his driving the car on that day meant that about over 100 children had got fed, children who otherwise would not have been fed. And it just transformed him, transformed him. And he started to get involved in just about everything, just about everything. He became passionate about what he did. This man, this, this careful accountant who would always held back with ever so much reserve, suddenly realized that, that actually if you live in a different way, you can make a difference a way that impacts the life of other people, and I can still remember his children coming to me. his children lived this was in the Durban area in I' stronger. His children lived in Johannesburg and they came came to visit him once and I can remember they they, they came to see me and they said brian we, do, we we do not know what has happened to our dad, but we just want to say thank you for him we we've, we've never seen him so happy we've never seen him so fulfilled we 've never seen him just be." Living so fully as he is not. thank you, whatever you've done, <clears throat> it's made the most amazing difference. And I say, well, you know, he's just realized that you don't have to put the brakes on with Jesus. That you can take the brakes off. and I mean, you take the brakes off, life changes. Now, 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 that's the principle that Paul is talking about. He's saying, you know, if you live this, this cautious little life that, that, that holds back in everything, you, you'll, you'll get a bit of a harvest. But it will be tight and it will be small and it won't really be, be very much. Why not just live a little more recklessly, a little more generously, be, be bigger, and trust God a little bit more? That's, that's the first principle, that, that if we do that, then, then strangely we are the people that are blessed. Second, very practically, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, if you do that, other people are blessed. Other people are blessed. I mentioned the background. This was a church in Jerusalem. It had come upon really hard times. Uh, they were struggling. Because of the offering of the churches, they were blessed. But you know what? It turned out to be bigger than that. This is a really fascinating study. Uh, Historians of the church and and general historians would say, and and I have mentioned this before, that charity was not really a natural part of the ancient world. In fact, if you look at many of the Greek and Roman philosophers, they're they're actively taught against doing active charities, particularly showing kindness to slaves or people who had become poor and vulnerable. They felt that was just propping up poverty and that it was a bad thing to do. And so kindness was not a natural part of the ancient world. But as Christianity was birthed, it was birthed in this hostile environment. And in this hostile environment, the, the, the church was persecuted. And that's when it was persecuted because there were three key claims that were made against Christians. One, the people said that Christians were cannibals. They were cannibals, why? Because they ate the body and blood of Jesus. They, I mean, this wasn't, we, we talk about our Twitter age where people don't really get the full message of something. It's always been a world like that. And in this Twitter world, people have just got this little message somewhere. You know, they, they, they have this feast where they're eating the body and blood of their God, uh, you know, the Eucharist. So, so people said that Christians were cannibals. Secondly, they said that they were sexually depraved, because they'd heard that when they met together, they greeted each other with a holy kiss. And they had no idea of what a holy kiss was. But rather than finding out, they just assumed, because it was such an immoral society, that, was, that this was a yet greater form of dep- uh, dep- 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 deprivation. And, 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 and so they basically said, you know, these people are, are sexually deprived and, and, and depraved. And, and, and they, they, they go and they greet each other with this holy kiss. I mean, can, can you imagine what, what that must be? And so that word got out about Christians. And thirdly, they were accused of being traitors because they refused to say that Caesar was Lord. They insisted that Jesus was Lord. And so in this kind of world, which has always been the world that doesn't really dig into, into facts, Christians were deeply distrusted, distrusted as cannibals, distrusted as people who were sexually kind of depraved in some way, and people who, who were disloyal traitors to the state. And yet, in spite of that, Christianity grew every single decade. And and, and you have to ask yourself the question, why? And and the reason why, you know, church historians more and more are saying, the reason why was because the early church just blew people away through acts of kindness. Because up until Christianity, no one really cared for people who were struggling in society. Now, now this this formal act of taking this collection for the church uh, in Jerusalem, was one of, is perhaps, some people say it's the very first formal act of a charity being formed in all of human history. This, this charitable act of kindness, doing good for the other, starts to just become embedded in terms of this is what Christianity is about. It is a, a faith of kindness. And as a faith of kindness, it overcame all the obstacles that it faced and won the hearts of the people. And so you say, Paul is saying, you know, what you're doing will lead to the praise of God. Actually, it was much deeper than this. This was, was the, the, the defining mark of the church. You are a people who shows kindness to others. You are generous. You don't hold on to everything for yourself. This is the kind of people that, 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 that Christians are, and it won the world. And you know what? If we become people of generosity and kindness all over again, I think we will win our world, which is equally suspicious to us in this day. So Paul is saying, sort it out in your heart what you're going to give. You know, make it as it's a matter of the heart. Remember this, that if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. So, so if you're generous, you'll find that life is generous back to you. You'll find that other people are blessed. Oh, and don't forget one thing, says Paul. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Because says Paul, lest you should ever think, you know, how incredible I am, how amazing I am. I'm this person who, who, who gives and and you know, I give my tithe, and I maybe even give more than a tithe. No, 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 no. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, is how Paul finishes this passage. And he's saying to us, you know, why should you give? Well, well, stand at the manger in Bethlehem. And ask yourself the question, why give? Stand at the cross of Calvary and ask yourself the question, why give? Stand at the empty tomb of Jesus and ask yourself the question, why give? Stand there and you will always say, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And you will remember as I remember That no one outgives God. No one outgives God. That God's is the gift that truly is indescribable. Let's pray together. Lord, we know this is a matter of the heart. Some of us find it difficult to really trust you. We wonder if your purposes for us are really good. Increase our faith. Help us to live as people who do trust in you. Thank you, Lord, for your incredible gift of love to us. We pray that even in this week that you will remind us of your goodness. And as we see your goodness to us, help us to trust you a little bit more and to put our faith and our confidence in you. We pray this in your name. Amen.